This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moe, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Rita Kogensen is associate director of the program on constitutionalism and democracy at the University of Virginia, where she also serves as an assistant professor of politics. She received her PhD in government from Harvard University and has pursued academic research in the fields of education, childhood, and the role of the family in contemporary political thought. The topic of our conversation today is her new book, Liberal States, Authoritarian Families, in which she surveys the ideas of political liberalism and its relationship with the authority of parents in the home. Professor Kogensen, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks for having me. I really found your book fascinating, and uh, I find a way to, I think, find most books fascinating, but yours in a particular way. Because uh, reading your book took me through not only uh, uh, a fascinating question of the early modern age with a deep relevance to our own, but it made me think about the way I've been reading several of the sources of the, uh, of, of, of the modern age, in particular Locke and, and Rousseau and others. There has to be a story behind how you got to this project, and I'd, I'd love for you to tell it. Um, well, I got to this project when I was in college. I mean, I've always been interested in education and I studied American history in college. So I wrote on the history of American education for my thesis. Um, but then I thought, you know, this is coming. All these people are citing Locke and Rousseau. This is all coming from somewhere. And so I read Emile uh, and some thoughts concerning education. And I thought it was very puzzling, especially some thoughts concerning education, how, you know, at the very beginning, he sort of says, you have absolute authority over your children. And, you know, if you've ever read the second treatise, uh, that's not that's not how he really talks about politics. Right. The whole point of the two treatises of government, in, in effect, is to overturn this idea of absolute power that anybody could have absolute power in politics. Uh, and it was very strange that he begins the thoughts concerning education just simply saying, you know, your, your ch child should treat you as their absolute governor. Uh, and so I was interested in that paradox and I was interested in general about how early liberals conceived of um, parenting, child rearing and education, because it seemed to me that everything that I read that was contemporary on these questions uh, wasn't going to lead to any good result. Um, and, and I wondered if this had been a problem from the outset, that liberalism was conceived with a kind of foolish idea about how to raise children and how to educate them, uh, or whether this was a kind of misinterpretation that or misunderstanding that sort of weaseled its way in later. Uh, so I decided I would take a look. Well, you ended up writing your dissertation at Harvard uh, on this issue. And then uh, your book, Liberal States, Authoritarian Families, Childhood and Education and Early Modern Thought, just came out recently from Oxford University Press. So th there has to be a sense of satisfaction in uh, having uh, worked through uh, not only the doctoral project and the dissertation, but but now a finished academic work. Yeah, no, everybody, I think, uh, hopes that their dissertation will one day be published or publishable. Yes. Uh, and so it's very satisfying when that when that finally happens. Right. And to be honest, uh, a, a lot of uh, dissertations that eventually are published uh, probably shouldn't have been. Uh, but uh, yours is really fascinating in that, uh, you know, I, I had to rethink John Locke, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and uh, how they consider the uh, not only uh, the ordering of society in the early modern age, but but also the uh, the raising of children, and and deeply concerned about the family. 
Uh, I found the premise uh, of your study very interesting. And, and to be honest, I have to say, in reading both Locke and Rousseau and, and, and others, I could say, um, I really hadn't paid enough attention to the role of the family in their thinking, and even the role of the father, uh, but the parents and the child. And, uh, and yet th- this was a crucial issue uh, in the Enlightenment age. Yeah, I mean, it was a crucial issue even before that in the English Civil War, because, you know, Locke is responding to these patriarchal theories of government, right? They're not just patriarchal theories of the family, that goes without saying, but the argument of people like Robert Filmer, who was his sort of opponent in the two treatises, um, John Baudin, Thomas Hobbes, these other important absolutist thinkers, was that you could model the state on the family, and that would mean modeling the power of the king or the sovereign on the power of the father, so that he held a kind of patriarchal power writ large. So patriarchal power had, or paternal power had, this important political valence that today we obviously don't consider because we don't have a royal government. Well, we don't consider it, but it's yet deeply rooted. Uh, uh, For instance, uh, after I read your first few chapters, uh, I I thought, you know, I'd like to go back in the history of governance uh, even in the classical sources, and just wonder to the extent to which patriarchal or fatherly images are very much a part of rule, whether it's uh, it's well articulated and uh, and rationalized. Uh, the fact is, I think there there has been, and I think it can be documented pretty easily, a transference of the model of the family to the model of uh, of government. Eventually, the the emergence of the state. Uh, it's there somewhere. Oh, it's there in Plato's Republic. Right. I mean, if you think about Plato's Republic, what is it ultimately but one big family, right? So mm-hmm. we, we have this community of women and children. Everybody is your mother and father. Every other child is your brother and sister. So that the whole goal is kind of to reduce politics to one big family. Um, and, you know, that was understood, I think, by most political philosophers not to be an actual desire that we should pursue, but an almost kind of dystopian fear Right. That this would be the the extreme destruction of politics as if we turned it into a family. Um, And I mean, there are other, you know, many people make the analogy of the king and the father. The king should be kind of paternal. The king should love his subjects like his children. Um, But it's actually not until Jean Baudin uh, in the 16th century that you get somebody arguing that the power of the king is is modeled on the power of fathers. Often you'll see, you'll see arguments like, you know, kings kings should rule in the interest of their subjects in the way that fathers, you know, raise their children in the interest of their children. There are these kind of loose analogies. Um, but rarely does anybody say, well, the king is just like your father. And moreover, like your father should have more power than we legally give him so that he can better be like, m- better model the king's power. Right. Well, but then uh, his position, as you say, is rather extreme, uh, giving the the father power of life and death over his children, at least in theory. But uh, just in terms of the of the rise of government in the state, at some point, um, even in the medieval world, the the state gained uh, a monopoly on the on the power of life and death, and and so in that sense, the state was interposed between the the. The uh, the child and the parents in that sense, um, the 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 theory that that ought to be reversed it, it doesn't gain much traction. But but Locke clearly does come back and say, well, but still um, the uh, the the authority of the family is uh, is to be respected, and especially when it comes to the 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 second 
uh, responsibility of of raising children, which is to educate them. Yeah, I think that what Locke sees is actually a kind of product of liberalism, right, or or nascent incipient liberalism. We wouldn't say the 17th century was fully liberal, but he's sort of imagining a world that is based on natural rights and based on this idea of natural equality um, and natural liberty. And so there's all these limitations. When you read the two treatises, he has all these limitations on paternal power, parental power. That's the first limitation is it's actually not just paternal power, but it's shared between mothers and fathers. And so he calls it parental power. So that already limits its scope in a great, to a great extent. You know, the age of majority, at the age of majority, your parents have no longer any control over you if you don't want them to. Uh, and that's that's decisive and they don't get a say. I mean, they can choose to give you less inheritance if they don't like you, but they also can't deny you an inheritance entirely. If they have an inheritance to give you, they owe you the, the means to sustain yourself. And those are obvious limitations on parental, paternal come parental power. Uh, but the, there's this other problem, which is that once we have disestablished all of the other authorities that existed in the sort of in the Middle Ages, in the early modern period, the authority of the church, uh, the authority of the universities or of scholastic thought, um, and all of these sort of institutions, the aristocracy is another big one. Uh, public opinion becomes actually quite powerful, right, in a way that it never was before, because public opinion would sort of wash up on the shoals of these various institutions, which had these enormous formative effects on people. Uh, and instead, you have this kind of mass public opinion, potentially. Uh, and so now you need education for a different purpose. You don't need education so that children can learn what their father's power looks like and then analogize it to their sovereign's power. But you need education so that they can withstand public opinion and have some hope of actually attaining to this kind of freedom that's being promised by liberalism uh, before it's foreclosed by sort of the conformism that is imposed on you in a sort of mass society. All right. And uh, just to be clear, when you're speaking about liberalism, you're speaking about classical liberalism, uh, the, the modern project of ordered liberty. And uh, the most formative thinkers, at least in the English-speaking tradition here with uh, Hobbes and, and Locke, and then, of course, uh, the influence of Rousseau in the English-speaking tradition. I've always thought of Locke and Rousseau as, uh, as to be uh, contrasted. Uh, Everyone uh, does. Uh, yeah. And there's a sense in which, even after uh, reading you, I'm convinced that there's a basic sense in which that's right. But I'll tell you, one of the things you convinced me of is, is that when it comes to the enemy, of, uh, of, of liberty to be considered in the raising of children. In both cases, it really is the power of public opinion. Uh, the, 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 the power of public opinion is a new despotism. Yeah, I mean, Tocqueville is really the thinker who articulates that most fully, I think, for Americans in democracy in America, which is kind of beyond the scope of my book. So I, I finished in the 18th century. Tocqueville's obviously writing in the 19th. Um, but he has a whole account of the way that public opinion and democracy works when there's kind of no boundaries. And, you know, they're, they're, everybody feels that they have a kind of equal access to truth because we're all equal in principle. So why should you know something that I don't know? And the result of that is a kind of epistemological sense that, like, we all know that if everybody has access to the same amount of truth and the same amount of information, then truth is likely to be on the side of the majority because there's just more of them and they agree. And so why shouldn't we take that to be the truth itself? 
Uh, and Locke and Rousseau are less developed on this question. I mean, Tocqueville is obviously very influenced by Rousseau when he's writing about this. Uh, but they already start to see this problem. They call it the power of fashion, the power of reputation. Uh, sometimes they call it custom. Uh, but it's these kind of informal pressures on people that are strengthened when you get rid of the formal institutions that used to rein them in. And especially right. the formal decentralizations that used to rein them in. It's also very interesting to see, and I think I think parents today would find very interesting, um, both uh, uh, John Locke and uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, when it comes to, for instance, uh, education and the parents' role in education, and then also what happens in adolescence, because uh, both Locke and Rousseau recognize that at some point, at some point, the parents, having been more or less sovereign in the education of their children, uh, they're going to uh, to have to face the fact that their children are going to end up in a peer culture, and that peer culture is going to be. You think about the the conversation today about social media and all the rest, but the the point that both Locke and Rousseau recognized is that that peer culture is going to be, if anything, more powerful than the parental culture. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Rousseau kind of inverts Locke in his account of Emile to say like, well, we can stop this if you did it correctly. Um, but, you know, he, it's a little preposterous what he's proposing, right? He says, well, you can stop, you know, all all desires from forming until age 30 if you monitor the children closely enough. Um, and so th that's supposed to be, I mean, we have to sort of think about what is Locke, what is Rousseau trying to do with Locke when he makes these sorts of criticisms. But Locke is very clear that he says there's this boiling, boisterous time of youth, uh, which is adolescence, and nobody's, you know, boys are not interested in listening to the authorities that they previously had, you know, had respected. And you need to expect that. And so you've got to build them up before then so that they're prepared for that time so that they can at least experience some kind of dissonance between what their peers are demanding of them and what their family had raised them with. And they have to experience what their family has raised them with as actually really pleasant so that they can think about it as like, well, now there's a real sort of, you know, tug of war inside of me between this thing that I loved about my family, right? And then this, this thing that my peers are expecting of me, which should I choose? Whereas if you don't do that, they will automatically go with their peers. If you get your children to resent you, right, then they will say that terrible way my parents raised me and this wonderful thing that my, my peers are luring me towards. Well, I, uh, I appreciated Locke's insight here when he talked about the fact that, uh, for instance, and we're talking about boys primarily here, the, the education of boys as a, as a cultural uh, priority in a way that wasn't for girls in the era. Uh, but uh, he, he seems to understand that uh, things are easier when the child is younger and the parents are basically sovereign in the education of, the, of their, and he thinks it should be that way. He, uh, he, and I appreciate the fact that Locke understands that there really is no alternative uh, to respecting the singular role and, uh, and, and, and rights and responsibilities of, of parents and the raising of young children. But he continues that through what we would consider school age because he, he, he fears something more than, for instance, the influence of, say, bad or inadequate parents, and that is the, uh, the tyranny of, uh, of peers and, and says basically that uh, you know there there are people who want to overthrow the tyranny of parents in the education of their children, but the worst tyranny is the tyranny of uh, of of the other children, other boys, peers. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, he he has this kind of consideration and some thoughts concerning education. Should you send your child to a boarding school? I mean, that's the only option at the time, uh, one of these private boarding schools, like the kind that Locke went to. He went to Westminster. Uh, or should you keep them at home and hire a tutor or do the tutoring yourself? Uh, and, you know, he sort of weighs the pros and cons and says, well, ultimately, like you can learn maybe better Greek and Latin in a, in a school. But are you willing to sacrifice your child's moral upbringing for a little bit of Greek and Latin and the, the terrible way that boys will teach them how to become treacherous uh, and manipulative and that this, this is the way that you get along with other boys in a school and that's what your child is going to learn uh, versus keeping him at home, making him a little bit naive perhaps, but you know that can be corrected once he enters society and whereas the manipulativeness, as he calls it, the tricking, uh, the malapertness and tricking of boys is much harder to stamp out once it's ingrained. Right. And of course, uh, you know, th- th- this is a precursor to a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the social thinking, even in the 20th century, that has drawn analogies between uh, the behavior of uh, children uh, in a school situation and what we could call the tyranny of public opinion then, and the, the, the same patterns in mass politics in the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, actually, one of the people who picks up on this is Hannah Arendt uh, when she writes in the 20th century on she has an essay called The Crisis in Education. Uh, she writes in 1958, 1959, and she has a whole passage on, well, you know, there's a kind of progressive progressive education has this kind of ideal that there's this children's world. And what, what adults should do is just step out of it and let the children govern themselves, because in their purity and beauty, they will come up with something better than if we impose our authority on them. And she says, what will they come up? with, they will come up with tyranny of the majority, right? Because they have no reason and they have no judgment and all they do is pursue fashions and they inflict them on each other. And you have this kind of, you know, gross conformism that has not even a mind at the top. Uh, And that's what you're going to subject children to. And she says that's an authority far worse than any adult authority because adults are at least reasonable. They can be reasoned with uh, and they can interpose themselves between these kinds of peer relationships. Uh, And she does see that as a kind of model for mass society that's very troubling. Yeah. Well, and of course, uh, she's writing over against the horrors of the 20th century and mass culture that produced everything from, uh, well, most importantly, uh, the, the, uh, the, the fascism in uh, Italy and in Germany in the first half of the 20th century. So she knows of which she speaks. And this yeah, is not I a mean, hypothetical fear. It's actually quite interesting. She's just arguing about American education, right? So she's not saying like, look, this is going to lead to totalitarianism or something like that. She's just take, sort of critiquing progressive education and says what it's really going to lead to is just a kind of, you know, lack of education. These people will not be educated, right? And that there's a problem with democracy and especially American democracy, it's orientation towards new things and newness, that it wants to embrace progressive education because that too points to the future. And she says the real difficulty in education is understanding that education is about pointing backwards and it's about the old. That's the thing you have to educate children to. They're going to be new on their own, that you don't have to make them new because the fact of their individuality is already there. Every child is a new thing, a new individual in the world. So you don't have to educate them into that. What you have to educate them into is the Western tradition, because that's the thing that is not in any way going to be obvious to them. And so she's actually, I mean, she's a liberal, you know, she's a socialist in many respects, but she sees education as a kind of weakness of liberalism, which is that liberals tend to want a kind of forward-looking anti-authoritarian education, because that aligns with their political values, which are also anti-authoritarian, but that that's 
actually a mistake in the realm of education and children because you've got to sort of invert your priorities there and you have to sort of diverge from the principles that govern your regime in order to correctly educate a child for that regime. So if if I if I take your project with the at least in my mind Locke and Rousseau as your major conversation partners there are others uh but uh, but Locke and Rousseau are at the center. Uh Locke uh being uh English uh British uh, I guess perhaps uh, uh we would say now and uh and and understanding the the necessity of trying to articulate how liberty would work over against uh dictatorship autocracy absolutism um he he sees the family as an asset he sees the family not only as an asset but as necessary he sees parents as the the governors in the in the first government and education is primarily their responsibility the role of the father is to prepare a son uh, to be ready to, uh, to, you could say, function in the in society as a citizen, uh, uh, but that's not really Locke's term. But uh, but he's very concerned that they'd be able to withstand uh, public opinion and peer pressure and and operate in a responsible adult way. Fair to say. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but what Locke sees as essential in in the role of parents and the family, Rousseau in his utopianism that uh, that frankly I'm more confused about now than <laughs> having read him for decades um he he wants to abolish the family but not quite can you untangle that a bit yeah, I mean, Emile's a really complicated book for this reason, right? Because if you read like book one, it's this there's this huge exhortation there to parents, to mothers, you need right. to breastfeed, stop wet nursing, right? You have to pay attention to your own children, stop going to Paris, stop trying to pursue your intellectual and social life. You have to turn inwards towards your family and take care of your family. Uh, and then to fathers, the same kind of exhortation, teach your own children. And then it kind of in the middle of book one, he abruptly says like, okay, but you're not going to listen to me. So I'm going to show you how to educate a child by by getting this hypothetical boy, Emil, he's totally average in every way, and getting him this hypothetical tutor, myself, Jean-Jacques, uh, and I'm going to go through for the next, you know, 400 pages what it would take to educate this child according to nature. And then at the very end, in book five, there's infamously book five, much reviled, uh, if you go on Amazon <laughs> to see the, the ratings of Emil, uh, he gives you this education of girls of women and the education of women. So he gives you this ideal woman, Sophie, who's supposed to become, uh, you know, Emile's wife. Uh, and the education that he proposes for women is uh, at home with their parents who don't seem to require much convincing to educate Sophie. Uh, they're like a loving country family. And so it's very puzzling. It's like, what is Emile doing? Like, what is, what is the purpose of this book if it's structured in this way? And I think that what's happening is I mean, he gives you this utopian account of Emile's education. It's totally impossible to replicate. I mean, even from the outset, he says, well, you know, every boy needs a tutor and the tutor can only tutor one boy. So and he basically has to commit to this child for life. So if you just think about the demographic necessity there, it's that all Frenchmen would be, you know, entailed to tutoring one French boy and they would never be able to do anything else. And there'd be no economy or country or anything. It's a nation of tutors. Uh, so it's obviously impossible. The things that the tutor is expected to do are impossible. I mean, he controls Emile's entire environment, every single detail of it, right? No tutor can realistically do that. He sort of manipulates everybody in the neighborhood and engages them in these elaborate sort of scenarios for Emile to walk into so that they could 
become educative for him. You know, nobody can do that. Uh, he keeps Emil in sexual innocence until he's, you know, proposes to do it until he's 30. Uh, so that's also a challenge. So all of that stuff is impossible. Sophie's education is, you know, the way that Rousseau frames it. He says, like, this is an oppression. This is an empire over women. And so it sounds terrible. And that's how people take it, I think, commonly. But it's actually totally doable. And what it is, is Locke's education. It's just for a girl. And Locke himself says, you know, this education that I'm writing, I'm going to use a boy, but it could be a girl. And only only a little bit would have to be changed around for for the necessities of sex. Uh, but everything basically would be the same. So he's kind of taking Locke at Locke's word and he's giving him a girl. And the girl is Sophie. And she turns out pretty well. And so that also, I think, adds to the puzzle of what Emile is. But you so, can I draw mean, a line. Excuse me. But you, you yeah. can draw a line at least in terms of uh, cause and effect, plausibly, between John Locke and the American Revolution. Uh, in fact, you can't explain the American Revolution without John Locke. You can't explain even a figure like Roger Williams. You know, In other words, the more we learn, the more we learn how much uh, these figures were reading John Locke and whether they were agreeing with him or, or synthesizing him. Or, or, you know, but in some sense, Locke's a part of that conversation of ordered liberty that produces constitutional government, uh, even a constitutional monarchy in Britain and uh, ordered liberty and in in constitutionalism in the United States. But then, in contrast, you draw a line from Rousseau to uh, absolutism and uh, and radical, uh, a, a radical revolution. And, uh, and and so the education is a part of that. I, I'm, I'm your, your work really made me kind of rethink what Rousseau said about education, but I end up thinking more or less the same thing about Rousseau and cause and effect. So I think Rousseau is easy to misread in the ways that he has been misread because he's a very difficult thinker and it's easy to seize on what you like and say like, ah, this must be what he means for me. But what I think Rousseau is doing, not just in Emile, but in a lot of his works is kind of extending the philosophical logic of the people that he's critiquing. Hobbes in The Social Contract, Hobbes and, and Locke are also, Locke is also the target in The Social Contract. And in Emile, it's Locke's education. What he's trying to do with Emile, I think, is to, to show that if Locke were totally consistent in his own philosophical principles, the result would actually have to be Emile's education. Education. But it's impossible. Bad news. So then in the end, he sort of capitulates to Locke and Sophie is Locke's education. And I think you can see this in a few places in Emile. One is the problem of consent. So we're, we're familiar with the problem of consent from the second treatise. Uh, you have to consent to your government, right? No government is legitimate unless you've consented to it. Well, what does it mean then to say that a two-year-old, that you can impose your absolute authority over a two-year-old, right? You have kind of abrogated the possibility of consent there. And that's what Locke says. Locke says, you know, you impose your authority on the child immediately in infancy. And so Rousseau says, well, that's not really legitimate. It doesn't really follow from your principles, Locke. So let me show you what it would take to make an education that does follow from your principles, where you never impose authority on the child until the child is at the age of reason as able to sort of willingly, voluntarily accept that authority. And so he creates this elaborate scheme in which the child always thinks that nature and necessity are what's governing him and never feels the government of a human being. He never feels a human will, right? It's very difficult to make that possible, but that is philosophically consistent. So that by adolescence, that's when Emile in, in Rousseau's account would, you know, he comes to the realization, oh, the tutor has helped me. The tutor has raised me. The tutor has saved me so many times. Of course, I will accept the authority of the tutor. I have made a rational calculation that this person is working in my interest. 
But this is that radical utopianism whereby the child is always supposed to think he's in charge. And the, the, the task of the tutor is to teach the child in such a way that the child always thinks he wants what the tutor wants him to want. Right. It's not possible, but philosophically it's consistent. Yeah. And I think that's what Rousseau is trying to show in the same way that that Plato's Republic is not about like step by step. Here's how to set up the best regime. But if you want what complete justice, this is what complete justice would require. Now, let me ask you, do you want complete justice, right? And so I think Rousseau is doing something similar with Emile by saying, look, Locke is philosophically contradictory. If we really ironed out the philosophy here, all the premises and made them logically consistent, it would require this education that I'm showing you with Emile. Do you really want that? Is that really the education that we want to pursue? Okay, if not, then we have the second best option, which is Sophie. Sophie is practicable, but she is very contradictory. Right. And so it's a kind of you could say the education of Emil is a study in human nature. Right. It's a kind of philosophical study in human nature. It's not intended to be seized on and used as a curriculum, as many pedagogues reading Emil tried to do immediately after Emil was published. And you could say the whole tradition of progressive pedagogy from Bassadao and Pestalozzi and all of these people in Europe to John Dewey in the United States uh, is descended from this reading of Emil, which is like Emil's education is the best education. You should build a school that trains little Emiles, even though Rousseau says, don't build a school, you can't train children in schools. Right. Yeah, you know, the the interesting thing that uh, that strikes me uh, in, in, because progressive education is such a major factor in the 20th century, especially in the United States. And, uh, you know, I I was raised in that context. Uh, uh, But but in a conservative uh, family, and so that's why the title of your book, by the way, immediately caught me. So I'm in a conservative family, in a conservative church, but in thrown into a situation of progressivist education, and uh, and so I've I've tried throughout much of my adult life to understand what that entire educational project was about. And when you get to someone like John Dewey, uh, Dewey basically is about creating mass opinion. Uh, it, uh, so to me, it seems like that's the rejection of Rousseau. But but he I guess he claims Rousseau as an authority. Yeah, I mean, you can misunderstand Rousseau in so many ways because Rousseau is trying to write to all kinds of different impulses and desires, right? So there's the kind of the impulse of the Spartan in us, right? That wants the perfect republic, that wants to be a full citizen, right? And he says, okay, you want that? Here's what it would take. It would take the social contract or it would take even maybe more than the social contract. Uh, And then there's the impulse of the kind of solitary person who says, I want to disengage from society. I want to be just my own person. I want to like be one with nature or just philosophize. And that's the reveries of a solitary walker. Right. So he sort of gives you these different options. Or do you want to live in a commercial regime in a way? Emile, Julie, uh, The Letter to D'Alembert. These are the books that show you about how he, how can you live a relatively morally, philosophically consistent life within this essentially corrupt society around you. Right. Without either retreating from it or trying to start a revolution to reform it. And I mean, obviously, the the sort of absolutist stuff that comes out of Rousseau, the cause and effect that you were talking about. Right. The French Revolution. That's people reading the social contract and saying, oh, he wants me to do this, right? But it's never clear that Rousseau wants you to do this. It's it's a lot more complicated than that. Sometimes he wants you to think about this, right? He wants you to think about what it would take to resolve all of these philosophical contradictions and then ask, is it really worth it in politics to do that, right? Do we want our politics to do that? Taking responsibility for ideas, uh, and I understand what you're saying, and I I was fascinated because you're really bold to, uh, to, in in your your work, uh, to... uh, uh, by name, call out people who you believe have misread Rousseau and uh, 
That, that's what academic discourse is all about. It's interesting. But <laughs> Well, John Dewey's dead, so he can't fight back. But yeah, he's yeah. one of the misreaders of Rousseau. Well, but with massive effect, you know, because if you look at the 20th century in the United States and you look at debates right now about the schools, I mean, it's, it's Thomas, it's, uh, excuse me, John Dewey, who uh, makes the open argument that a par- part of the purpose of the common school is to separate children from the prejudices of their parents. Basically, the family is a problem. John Dewey's looking at all these immigrant families, the, the Irish Catholics, the Italian Catholics, but he's also looking at the Lutheran German families and others. And he's saying, we can't have a decent nation if we don't create mass opinion. And, uh, and the obstacle to this common culture are these uh, parents. You got to, I mean, after all, Italian Catholic parents want to raise their children to be Italian Catholics and especially Catholic. And so John Dewey interposes this, uh, this secular humanism, which he calls it. I mean, he, he, he calls it that. Um, and, and Rousseau, he thinks, is his, uh, is his champion. Yeah, I mean, so he also thinks Plato is his champion. Uh, he says, I'm going to modify each of these. he was. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, you know, you have to modify a lot in order to turn out John Dewey. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's inevitable that, that philosophy will get misread this way. I mean, it's hard to say this is Rousseau's fault. I mean, it's his fault for maybe writing ambiguously, but he was writing ambiguously in order to, to sort of speak to different audiences, right? To speak to people with these different sorts of desires and to try to show them what their desires philosophically entailed. Uh, and it's, it's hard to do that without sometimes opening yourself to misinterpretation. And even if you write as clear as day, I mean, Locke is a very clear writer in many respects, but you know, he's been interpreted all kinds of ways. People have interpreted him as a socialist. People have interpreted him as, you know, as some sort of Sassinian. I mean, all these Christian interpretations of him. Uh, so nobody can prevent this from ha- you become important enough and people are going to want to claim you for their, for their own cause. Uh, so I don't know how much we should blame Rousseau for it, but I do think that the that's not the right way to read Rousseau uh, and that we do have to take seriously what Rousseau's, how Rousseau is trying to answer his predecessors. Yeah, I think it's also fair just in terms of the history of ideas uh, to say this may be a misreading of X or Y, but nonetheless, this has been the dominant influence that has, uh, has uh, flowed into our culture. And thus, uh, whether John Dewey read Rousseau rightly or not, he was claiming Rousseau, and as you say, claiming Plato. And the net effect is that the debates about education in America right now are as current as the debate between Locke and Rousseau. Yeah, that's right. But I think you can take Rousseau back. And I think you can, you know, you can show that this isn't what Rousseau was about. I mean, Rousseau very clearly was not arguing for any kind of institutional schooling. So that's that in itself is a problem. Almost all of progressive pedagogy is about forming institutional schools that can somehow produce these sorts of people. Uh, So, I mean, there are many resources to argue back against this. And I mean, I think it's, it's quite interesting that progressive education, you know, even liberals in the 20th century, again, like Arendt, who are in other ways committed to the progressive project, are skeptical of progressive education as the means to that project. Yeah, well, uh, at least uh, you're probably not going to like this at all. But uh, I'll just tell you that at least a part of what I'm thinking in this is that the uh, the the progressivist uh, educators have wanted to think themselves like Emile's tutor. You know, they, they, they wanted to have that kind of role, but Emile turned on them. Uh, so, you know, the classical liberals that uh, had been in so many ways, and and I'd say, you know, um, progressives within the, uh, the, 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 the educational order, they're now finding themselves uh, opposed by a far more progressivist uh, uh, generation that uh, is not coming to the conclusion of a meal that this tutor was so benign. Yeah, well, I mean, 
there's a lot of stuff going on in the educational debates right now. I mean, so I'm in Virginia where we just had a gubernatorial election right. that maybe turned on this question of who has authority over children's right. education. Uh, and I mean, I think that the people who are want to take back authority for parents are actually quite empowered at the moment uh, and, and have a lot of leverage. So I don't think it's a hopeless cause. And I don't I mean, there's a certain sense in which progressive education, like preschool progressive education, right, it's just ubiquitous and probably probably harmless because you're, there's not much that you're going to teach two-year-olds or three-year-olds anyway, one way or the other. Uh, but I think that there is, you know, a real backlash against the effort uh, to to do this at every level and, you know, to get rid of tracking, to get rid of testing, to get rid of every single sort of benchmark of achievement that would individuate people. Um, it's not obvious that the coalition that they, that had been counted on to make this happen is actually the coalition that's going to support it. I mean, you have a lot of immigrant parents, and especially uh, who are very opposed to all of these measures. And a lot of conservative Christian parents and uh, uh, this uh, coalition of parents, frankly, who don't even think of themselves as having been politically activated, who all of a sudden were uh, the suburban vote there in Virginia right, right. Uh, back in November. But, uh, you know, it's really interesting to me. I'm a Christian theologian. And uh, so, uh, you know, just just as I see the issue of the family here in this context, I have to read it through the historic Christian understanding of subsidiarity and uh, of uh, of the most basic units of society and the necessity of those basic units being respected and being healthy if there's to be health or respect at, at, at any uh, abstracted level. And so when I look at this, I'm just saying, look, with, uh, you know, just try having children without parents. That's good luck with that. Just try try educating children without the family. You know, good luck with that. Try replacing the family with anything else, such as mass education under the control of the state. And I do not actually mean good luck with that, but I mean, it's, it's, it's not going to work. Uh, and it's certainly not going to work according to the utopian schemes of the John Deweys and, and, and others. So when I picked up your book, I have to tell you, I'm just coming at it as a as a an orthodox christian classical christian thinking you know Locke is coming to terms with subsidiarity he's not talking about it because it's it but he's but he sees the family as organic and he understands you're not going to have citizens unless parents do their work yeah i mean i think that is the the liberal social contract you know state of nature tradition is that for the most part except for hobbes who who Rousseau then tries to answer they argue that the family is natural, precedes the state, precedes right. any kind of social contract, right? And therefore has a kind of special standing among what you would call subsidiary institutions, right? Which is that it, it's more sacred than the rest. The other ones are more conventional, right? So we could say, well, churches, you know, I, they might precede the state, they might not. We don't know. Some of them clearly don't. Uh, other kinds of associations, right? You know, the Knights of Columbus, like clearly not uh, pre pre-state association. But the family has a kind of valence that is much more inviolable by the government than these other ones. And then a lot grows out of the family, right, that extends its sort of reach. Yeah, you know, I think uh, also reading your book, I I thought about uh, arguments, and you actually, I think, at one point cite um, uh, perhaps uh, Christopher Lash, Haven in a Heartless World. and I'll tell you, I I I, uh, I think a lot of the uh, of of the, the the writings of Christopher Lash on these yeah, issues. Yeah, the, another and socialist who's not on board with progressivism, right? In this right. particular realm, right? Or you take some someone like uh, both uh, Peter and Bridgette uh, Berger, uh, sociologists who come to this and just say this is this is just how it works. 
and and yet i i mean right now we are we're living through a period in which you do have open argument i mean it's i didn't even think you know that i was going to you know we'd end up talking about the virginia election i know you're there and i i was there for the election but you know when uh, when the democratic uh, candidate told i just i don't think parents should have any role in this you know we leave it to professional educators I mean, your your book could not have been better timed, you know, just for for, for that whole idea uh, to emerge with cultural valence. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I gave a talk like right after the election at the University of Richmond and mm-hmm. was like, well, now I'm very trendy. So everything I right. say is to- totally relevant to <laughs> current politics. I mean, it's more complicated in the American case, right, because we're we're not talking about parents doing homeschooling. Right. That battle has been fought and right. it seems we're not, to have we're been, not debating it. You mean, yes. Right. Yes. So, I mean, the question of parents having control of their children's education, if they choose to keep them home and educate them, that's sort of a settled question for now. And I think right. for a while, right, that, yes, if you want to pull your children out of school and provide, you know, a Lockean education for them at home, you're certainly welcome to do that. But then the question becomes within the, the public school, which is governed democratically. Right. And you as one family don't have a say over what other kids or what other families are going to get as their instruction. So there, there's a kind of question over who controls the schools and how and who determines curricula. And it's not just a family, but now it has to be a majority of families, right, as represented on the school board, right? So they've got to elect these people to the school board who are going to represent their views. And then you can have a real question, the educators versus the parents, right? Once you've got a majority on the school board that wants something that the administration or the teachers or the teachers union doesn't want. Uh, And so the American case is a little more complicated than that. Plus, we have private schooling, we have these other institutional options for families that want to take control of their kids' education. So it's not quite the Lockean dilemma. It's a more advanced version of what happens in a democracy, especially a representative sure. democracy. Sure. But, you know, almost all of that was uh, was present uh, in the early modern age. You know, uh, you, you you had private education. And in fact, Locke was the, as you say, Westminster, the product of one of the most elite, one of the top six uh, of the uh, of the British boys uh, schools, the uh, the so-called public schools, which were private. Um, and in France, uh, the same thing. And and uh, yet, uh, and you're probably uh, very familiar with this, but you know the the, the history in France was largely the the uh, church control of the schools, and then the absolute secularization of the schools, and then the modern allowance that you might have private schools, but they have to be under the supervision of the state and this regime of professional educators, which which neither Locker nor Rousseau could foresee. Yeah, I mean, the question of, of education in the in uh, the 19th and the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, the United States really stands apart from developed countries in how decentralized our educational system is. I mean, it's true that in Western Europe, there are private schools, but often they are run by the state. They're subsidized by the state in many cases, right? So like, for example, in Great Britain, you can go to any kind of religious school for free uh, because it's subsidized by the state. But as uh, one of my friends says of this arrangement, uh, with state shekels come state shekels. Shackles. Uh, Absolutely. So <laughs> you get the funding, but that you, is then a you... very Baptist principle, I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, except that the shekels are, are specifically Israeli currency, but it's right, a basic right. principle holds, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, so we have avoided that situation by saying we're going to have a realm of private schooling, which is going to not take any money from the state. I mean, that's not strictly true because, you know, they take some, some you know, peripheral money, uh, but not any direct funding from the state and is going to be 
autonomous in its curriculum and administration from the state as a result. And one of the results of that is that we have this enormously decentralized system. We have private schooling that is, you know, more or less uncontrolled. Um, I mean, there's certification some kind of regulation sometimes, but ultimately you can start any school you want. Uh, there's homeschooling, which is you know regulated to varying degrees from nothing at all to minimally. Uh, there's uh, this whole system of public schooling, which is run at the local level, which is a kind of unheard of idea in Europe and but in it's you know, so other American. OECD countries. It is very American. So and I think American. it's actually, yeah. it's very Lockean. It's a yes. way of preserving this kind of liberty, right? Because you're decentralizing the control. And so you're decentralizing the force of public right. opinion on children, right? So yes, the children are subjected to the public opinion of their own town, you know, city area that they grow up in, but there's, you know, 30,000 school districts. So at least you will not, it will not result in a national homogeneity of opinion and a national homogeneity of belief. Yep. Uh, And not long ago, I was looking at uh, the uh, actual school records of a school board in the West. And and so this was, this was uh, in, in Oklahoma. But uh, long before contemporary controversies, and the school board is a, is not only hiring the principal, but establishing which are the authorized books to be used. So it's, it's interesting. So many people right now are saying, you know, parents shouldn't ever have this. Well, uh, that's actually where it began. You know, these, you know, the local citizens, which are by and large parents, were actually approving which books were to be used. And this is prior to the evolution controversy, prior to any of that. So there it is. Yeah, no, I'm actually I'm working on an article right now about this kind of school boards and book censorship in the schools and which this this became a huge conflagration in the 1970s when you had conservative school boards asking for various books to be removed from the school library or removed from the school curriculum. And there they did have this kind of aegis of democratic authority because they were the elected school board and they had this historical right to do that. And uh, the schools, the districts would go to court or the teachers would go to court over this. And their argument was this is censorship. Children have a right to read. You are abridging their right to read. And it's really fascinating because, in fact, it's not censorship and children have no right to read because it's just the teachers arguing with the parents, one group of adults arguing with another group of adults over what children should read. Right. And so this whole argument that this is book censorship, which we still hear today, I mean, Loudoun County, I think, no, it wasn't Loudoun County, it was somewhere else in Virginia that had this controversy recently um, about approved books. You know, it's censorship, but children are uniquely in a position where you can't censor stuff that they're reading because they don't select their own reading material. They don't go out and buy it themselves. They don't determine what to read. Some adult somewhere is choosing for them. And so the real question is only which ones, the educators or the parents. And, you know, when you think about the, the American system, uh, I think um, Americans who are paying attention probably were quite uh, interested in the oral arguments in the, uh, the, the main school case that uh, came before the, the court uh, uh, early in December. And, uh, and, and so it, it came down to the fact that Maine wants to have a public school system and really wants to limit children and taxpayer money to the public school system. But some of their counties are so sparsely populated, they can't have a school. And so instead, they give the parents vouchers, you know, and, they, and you know, the, the case, the question before the court is whether the state can uniquely prohibit the use of those vouchers in religious schools that teach religiously, so to speak. Uh, but I'm thinking, you know, that that's just exactly again, that that's the, these very issues being played out. 
Yeah, no, I mean, we don't have a final resolution of this, right? We have these other, I mean, especially the religious schooling and religious funding or funding of religious school question, because most of Europe doesn't do what we do. They do fund religious schools. And that is an alternative. But control them to some extent. Right. It comes with control. It also comes with a question of discretion. What counts? What deserves funding, right? So like your, you know, your Jewish school that we approve of maybe, but then like what if your Jewish school is like too orthodox and we don't think that this meets our standards, right? Then we won't fund that, right? So it ends up, you raise a host of new problems by taking But that's exactly the question before the court in this uh, current case is because they they say we're not discriminating against religious schools. We're just discriminating against religious schools that, uh, that teach too religiously. Right. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it is indeed. And, you know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about Germany, which you raised, because Germany, yes, does allow religious schools, but it has inordinate uh, control over them. And then it officially legally criminalizes homeschooling. Yes, that's right. Homeschooling is very rare in OECD countries. Uh, It's not something, I mean, it wasn't even possible, well, technically legally possible in the United States until really the 1970s and 1980s. So that, you know, we we tend to think of like little house on the prairie types of education as being kind of standard in the United States, but they were not in fact standard. Most people from the 1860s onwards went to school uh, and the the state kind of got increasing control over that and passed compulsory school laws and things like that. So homeschooling is new in some ways. It's a new sort of reversion to something that we had forgotten or stopped, had fallen out of use. Yeah, um, but you know, in the United States, uh, uh, the, uh, the the religious schools were primarily uh, Jewish and then, uh, and thus very, very small population. And, and, and then were primarily Catholic. And, and the Catholics came in teaching that uh, Catholic children should be educated in parochial schools, that it was a parental responsibility that their children have a Catholic education. And so, you know, the public school conflicts in the Northeast and cities like Boston, Philadelphia, with, and New York in particular with, uh, with Catholic parents were not over really choice, but the, the Catholic Church's insistence in the parochial system. Protestants, including conservative Protestants, basically thought the common school, uh, uh, the, the, the public school system was great so long as the culture was conservative and Protestant. And so what's really interesting is, is that homeschooling in the United States and the modern movement really began on the left, you know, in places like the Pacific Northwest with the unschooling movement. Yeah, it was a strange bedfellows movement, especially through the 1970s when it was being litigated of conservative Christians and hippies. Right. Yep. No, and it's still kind of that way. They're just far more conservative Christians in it now than there are hippies. And the conservative Christians movement into homeschooling, which I'm a big advocate of, uh, is a uh, is a sign, I think, of the of the fact that what's being rejected is this idea that uh, that schools are in an adversary relationship, the recognition that there is an adversary relationship with this professional educational system. And Christian parents are saying no more of that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's right. There was always this kind of latent possibility of that when schools had to be at least in principle secular, right? So they right. were teaching a kind of secularized Protestantism for most of the 19th century and, and probably a lot of the 20th century in a lot of places. Uh, so it was always possible that they would take the secular and run with it. Um, but the, it is also the case that many developments in education, especially in the 1960s in teacher training and teaching as a profession have made, you know, the even the local public school often an adversarial place because the teachers will come from, they're not from the area. They don't share the values of this 
area. And so they're really out of sync with what the the town or, or the district would want. Uh, and that's sort of, you see these conflicts beginning in the 1960s and 1970s, and they've never really gone down because it continues to be an issue that teacher training is very different than what a lot of localities are right. expecting from their teachers. Right. Well, I really enjoyed your book at so many levels, but uh, one of the things that I, I look for is the emergence of certain ideas and, uh, and, and, and a different way of, of kind of tracking them. So actually, in a very uh, small reference in your book, you mention Alex Neal and uh, the idea of epistemological liberty is linked to Locke. And so I'll admit that that sent me down a rabbit hole for a few hours. Uh, and and back to uh, Neil's article, and then back to other uh, uh, where, where where he's reading Locke, because uh, th- this is really a small issue in your book, but it's a statement of appreciation. This is this is what makes a book like uh, like Liberal States Authoritarian Families so fascinating and profitable. Uh, because one of the questions I've been trying to deal with for decades is when does this idea of uh, of uh, of a liberty of thought as like the grand organizing definition of humanity, when does that uh, emerge? And uh, and Locke is crucial to that, as as is empiricism, the the the, the entirety of the early Enlightenment. But uh, just a statement of thank you, you know, just e- even a reference like yeah. that can be. No, Neil's helpful. article is really good. He's very good at. I mean, the essay concerning uh, human understanding is a very difficult text, and he's really good. Right. I think at breaking down uh, the arguments in it. What are you working on now? I, I, I know that uh, having finished a book like this, that you finished it some time ago, and I, I know something else is well underway. Yeah, I'm working on a history of American education mm. um, and especially the idea of schooling in the United States, which wow. is really an extension of, of this book. Uh, why is it that Americans yeah. who, as you say, are very influenced by Locke uh, in their politics, right, and then during the revolution and after in the, in the constitutional debates, uh, why don't they take seriously his his argument against schooling and they just kind of, you know, go for schooling whole hog from the very beginning, from the 1780s, 1790s, you get all these treatises from people, you know, like luminaries, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Rush, Noah Webster, all of these people writing about how we need to have a public school system. And it seems strange given how influenced they are by Locke. Some of them are influenced by Rousseau as well, that they would embrace schooling so thoroughly. And so I sort of start with this question and I'm sort of looking at, how it is that we understand schooling in the United States and whether we are concerned at all still about the warnings that Locke and Rousseau attach to schools. And I'm arguing that we are, uh, and we have a very strange approach to schooling, part of which, you know, is this decentralization, uh, this allowance of homeschooling and stuff like that, but also that we hate school. We have a kind of cultural antipathy to schooling. And like we treat teachers like, you know, teachers have low cultural status in the United States, given how much education they have, at least ostensibly. Uh, and we have all of this kind of, you can see it in, the, in our popular culture and you can see it in our literary culture, this treatment of the school as a repressive place. That like your real education is a thing that happens outside of school or against school with your friends. Uh, and that's really old. It goes back to Benjamin Franklin. You see it in Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, Little Women. Sure. Um, and so I'm sort of looking, I'm trying to examine this what I'm calling this kind of hating school tradition uh, in American thought. Uh, so that that's what my current book project is. Well, for whatever it's worth, I was uh, just reading uh, uh, some of the, the writings of Jonathan Dickinson, the, uh, the American founder. 
who uh, who was kind of a farmer, but claimed to be more of a farmer than he actually farmed. But uh, that, that, again, but he was writing about his own education, and it's very interesting. He recognizes how rare it was, and both rests his argument on the authority of his his education, but seems embarrassed by the fact that he recognizes most people he's writing to wouldn't have that education. And it just reminds me of, especially with Franklin, uh, who, by the way, partnered with George Whitfield, the evangelist in some of this, including the University of Pennsylvania, uh, the idea that a democracy can only be sustained if an adequate number of people have the education. If the, if, the, if the elite alone are educated, then we'll end up with an aristocracy just as formidable as the one we just overthrew. Yeah. And Franklin's solution is like, well, we're all poor here, so we're going to educate ourselves together yeah, uh, and not through schools, although then he builds yeah. the schools. So he's in some ways the kind of birth of this tension of saying, well, we yeah. need schools. Actually, democracy just needs schools. There's no other way. We can't expect everybody to become a homeschooling parent. Um, but you can't take them too seriously and you can't trust them too much. And I think that's kind of the weird American compromise that you don't see really anywhere else. To some degree, it's in Britain because it has some of our background. Uh, but not really anywhere else that you would just be really distrustful of the schools and kind of scorn them. Uh, and I love that about America. So uh, I was a product of distrust of schools. My parents were like, you don't have to go that often. They don't really know what they're talking about. Uh, so that, that's what I'm working on now is trying to kind of articulate this tradition and flesh it out. Well, the amazing thing about Americans is that they can imagine something on Monday, build it on Wednesday and be criticizing it by Friday. Yeah, that's right. That's, uh, we, we operate fast in this country. <laughs> Professor Cognizan, thank you so much uh, for your book and for this conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Many thanks to my guest, Professor Rita Cognizan, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to spts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.